Psychological injury on the rise in Yukon government employees in Canada. This spike in these claims is caused in part by an increase in workplace violence and harassment. The board's website says the effect of this harassment and violence on people can include minor or serious physical injuries, temporary or permanent physical disability, shock, anxiety, and psychological trauma. Doc, how do the effects of harassment and violence relate to mental health injuries? This article highlights that in the recent past there's been an increase in workplace psychological injury claims. Mm -hmm. Typically, when we talk about workplace compensation, we often think of physical injury uh, related to, you know, workplace accidents, but psychological injury can also occur. The most common cause, according to this article, is increase in workplace violence and harassment. And generally speaking, workplace violence or harassment actually includes, you know, things like threatening behavior or verbal or written threats, which, you know, suggests intent to cause harm or verbal abuse like swearing and throwing insults or even Mm. physical attacks like hitting, shoving, pushing or kicking. Mm. I mean, I think if we look hard enough, we see that in our own workplaces sometimes, sadly. And the effect on mental health of the employee is actually huge because it can range from low self-esteem, anger and frustration. You know, imagine feeling scared to get to work every day and then the sense of powerlessness or isolation, Mm. uh, physical illnesses as well, uh, and then depression, loss of sleep, loss of appetite and the list just keeps going on yeah but actually yeah. Doc, when it says harassment right yeah automatically you would think oh it's sexual harassment but it's not just that right i mean like a boss could be harassing a younger person a uh, younger staff member and say you or mess bullying, up and yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna sack mm. you or your job's on the yeah. line or whatever it is that's also harassment isn't it absolutely so it's all both psychological sexual you know there's variety mm. of different harassment uh, that you, you know you can consider. I think also the psychological ones um, a little bit more awful in the sense that you you you, you can't prove it. There's no external shows for it, right? And exactly. so trying to explain what's going on is so difficult. So yeah. as employers, you know, what can they do to have? help their employees during these drastic times? Well, I think the most important component is, you know, a prevention program. And that needs a huge management commitment. It's ideal if they have a written policy about this, you know, and so that means the policy should include things like people involved in addressing these issues, uh, like the management themselves, the employee representatives, maybe even the union if it's it's present, or the health and safety community. And it should define what they mean by workplace violence, harassment, and bullying in precise, concrete language. And they should give maybe some clear examples, state in clear terms what the organization's view is, and then state the consequences of making these, you know, sort of acts and outline the processes by which these preventive measures will be developed. So, you know, as long as you have a set SOP for this, then you're actually sending the message that this organization does not stand for harassment and, you know, violence in the workplace. And we will go all out to preventing it. So this article is about Alberta Health Services porting mental illness and addiction program referrals. Now, the article says that it needs staff from the facility to supplement a provincial system strained by COVID-19. So it's temporarily pausing some community referrals to the Concurrent Disorders of Enhanced Services Program, previously known as the Dual Diagnosis Program. So, Doc, could you help explain to us why people with mental illness associate themselves with illegal drugs? So when I worked in Australia, I headed the Dual Diagnosis 
diagnosis unit down there. Dual diagnosis really means having both a mental disorder and an alcohol or drug problem. These conditions actually occur quite frequently together. In fact, it's about 50% of people with a mental disorder will have a substance use disorder and vice versa. The interaction of these two conditions can actually worsen outcomes. So it's quite challenging managing people with this, you know, the dual diagnosis. Mm. But, you know, although these two problems can occur together, it doesn't necessarily mean that one caused the other, even if one appeared first. In fact, sometimes it can be hard to figure out which actually came first. But there, mm. there are three possibilities as to why they actually occur together. One is, you know, the common risk factors that contribute to mental disorders may also contribute to substance use disorders. So that includes genetics, stress, and trauma. Right. And secondly, mental disorders can also contribute to drug and substance use disorders because people with mental disorders may use drugs or alcohol to self-medicate. And of course, mental disorders may change the brain to make it more likely that you actually become addicted as well. And finally, substance use may actually change the brain in ways to make you develop a mental disorder because, you know, some substances like opioids are mm. CNS depressants, so they can actually trigger depression in people who are vulnerable as well. Yeah, I remember we had a chat about this where it becomes this vicious cycle and it just gets worse and exactly. worse and worse that you start de- mm. getting dependent on, on each one. Yeah. 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 Exactly right. And the difficulty of just stopping dead cold as well because a lot of these cause uh, issues um, if they're not actually, you know, handled by a doctor with a doctor as you're yeah. going through it. Professional, yeah. that's the right word. Yeah. Right. So for those, you know, people that are seeking help with their mental illness, now that the programs are being halted, what's the best substitute for them to continue their treatment journey? Patients here have seen regu- in regular psychiatry clinics, especially if there is a drug and alcohol specialist by his or her team. I guess if specialist services unique to this is halted, it'd be wise to go back to the nearest psychiatric service uh, for the continuity of care because all psychiatric training actually includes basic addiction management as well. According to a report obtained by the Wall Street Journal since last March 2020, Facebook officials have known that Instagram has the power to make teenagers feel worse about their bodies. They know this, my goodness. They know this, right. 32% of teen girls said that they felt bad about their bodies uh, and Instagram actually made them feel worse. So what is it about social media, doc, you know, applications like those that have such a negative impact on mental health? Well, I mean, typically most people use social media to share their highlights in life, you know, their best moments. Or the um, fake best moments at that, right? Because exactly. of all the filters and stuff. Right? That was just what I was getting to The advertiser, yeah. You, you know, you start comparing themselves to versions of others. Uh, that's you know, so carefully curated for the social mm-hmm. media. And also some of these portrayals may be edited and possibly fake. I mean, many influencers use editing software or apps to enhance their physical features. This sets the scene for, you know, that unattainable beauty ideals for both young girls and boys leading to issues like so le- low self-esteem, body image issues, and mm. even eating is- uh, disorder issues. These social comparisons are not limited to just appearances because social media users also share stories of their success in academics, sports, career, well, personal relationships. And I'm going to tell you the sad sob stories. Uh, with Instagram, I guess there's a reliance on the high visual nature, similar to TikTok and Snapchat, mm-hmm. which you know seems to put a premium on appearance again and youth typically are building their self-esteem and for girls sometimes looks are overemphasized in that whole process so imagine you're in an age when self-esteem is building and you're reliant on peer influence and then you get bombarded by these visuals all pepped up and modified to make you feel less worthy mm. it does a lot to your self-esteem and mental health yeah. yeah is there a way to use these applications in a sort of uh 
perhaps more healthy or balanced way for for younger people? Well, I think it's about choices. I mean, when you're having a bad day and need some positivity, don't turn to social media. It's about visuals and sense of comparisons. Reach out to real friends online or even face to face uh, and be there for them when they need you too. Mm -hmm. I mean, social media should not be your stress remedy. Rather, you know, something you want to engage in less when you're in that sort of state. You can also be very, very deliberate about who you follow, what you follow, Mm. and try to curate your own online space. You know, you don't need to follow that group because, you know, she's the most outstanding looking person in the world. Uh, And Mm. create a balance in the amount that you engage. You can choose not to participate in the pressure to make yourself highly visible, you know. After early psychiatric experimentation in the 50s and 60s, followed by decades of prohibition, sparked in part by the backlash against the hippie counterculture, psychedelics are experiencing a renaissance. A new wave of research has returned to hallucinogenic drugs as potential candidates to treat psychiatric conditions, according to this article. Doc, could you explain to us why people seek uh, drugs to treat themselves? Well, it's going back to what we discussed earlier, that some people may use illicit substances to somehow deal with the underlying mental health issue, Mm. which Mm. is a form of self-medicating. Psychedelics or hallucinogenic drugs have in recent times, though, through clinical research shown to alter neurochemicals, including serotonin, uh, which is, you know, largely involved in common mental health conditions like depression and anxiety, Mm. and also affect you know, the neural circuits of the brain by, you know, sort of building more interconnections in the brain, which are essential to breaking away from the rigid sense of self that people with these disorders may be fixed in. In fact, we already have one of them as a treatment in Malaysia, S-ketamine, which is an intranasal sort of uh, medication. Nasal spray sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a hallucinogen and it's used to good effect in patients who suffer from treatment-resistant depression and is now available at some psychiatric clinics in the country. Right. So, Doc, you know, you talk about sort of um, substance and the, the use of substance, uh, altering brain chemistry, changing neural pathways and stuff. Um, is it possible to change those back or to change them to something even more different to be able to overcome, you know, the fallout from substance abuse and addiction? Well, I think the jury is still out there. The research is still going on. Sadly, though, people have maybe, you know, through social media, read about this, learned about this and started taking things into their own hands Mm. and, you know, started doing their self-medicating thing, which is actually triggering a huge you know, problem in terms of uh, mm. drug use. God, that's not uh, use already, that's abuse already, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, for example, the S-ketamine that I just described is an extract of the hallucinogen, which has much less, you know, sort of effects or the, you know, intoxicating effects than the original substance. Mm-hmm. And it has, you know, uh, training that the doctors have to go through to observe and monitor the individual as well. So, you know, sometimes people using some of these psychedelics can actually go into severe negative emotions like anxiety, fear, panic, and even suicide. Mm-hmm. And it can be intense. Right. Um, also perceptual changes because they're hallucinogens. They can actually right. trigger hallucinations mm-hmm. and you can lose your sense of self or time. And you know that can really be very scary. That whole trip uh, is called a bad trip typically. That mm-hmm. whole experience can lead to you know long-term side effects like long-term anxiety, depression, or even dissociation. This article on gun violence um, says that according to researchers, living within a few blocks of a shooting increases the risk that a child will end up visiting the emergency department for mental health related problems. So, Doc, what's the impact of something like gun violence on a child's mental health? 
Yeah, so I, I think it actually showed that those who are living close to where this actually happened were most uh, affected. And so exposure to violence, uh, gun violence here in America, does have a negative impact on the mental health of children. I mean, kids living within two or three blocks of the shooting are more likely to have mental health-related emergency department visits. The most common conditions were post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, even substance use or uh, parasuicide. Children at higher risk include those injured in violence before, those who witnessed violent acts at close proximity, and those who are exposed to high levels of violence in their communities or schools, or even those exposed to violent media. And these children and youth exposed to these things are often struggling to identify and regulate their own emotions because of the developmental impacts from, you know, their frequent exposure to trauma, you know, because all of that, their brain is still a developing organ. And every time they experience these things, it can actually have a huge impact on the development and their emotions then become internalized and then later it can erupt in aggression and violence it's you know these bottled up emotions erupt and due to these sensitizing effects there's also the risk of modeling or using violence themselves as a way to resolve problems or expressing emotion i was wondering about this though doc I mean, let's say in the US, let's say you're in the mm. ghetto and you're exposed to a lot of gun violence. Is that the same kind of trauma that a child would experience if a child, let's say a refugee child, flees his or her country because of some war or a child, let's say in a country where there was a terrorist threat? Is yeah. it the same kind of trauma that they experience? Yep. It can actually exactly be the same kind of trauma. Right, because it's just violence yeah. in general. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's it's happening around in their vicinity and the environment. Their community is used to this sort of activity and so it becomes part of them as well. 